Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. You know, every person sitting in this room and every person who is joining us online has limitations. And some of those limitations are actual. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you train, no matter how high your vertical leap, you cannot jump and touch the moon. That's an actual limitation. But the majority of limitations that can find us aren't actual limitations, they're perceived limitations. They're thought processes. They're lies that we believe. There's ways that we've trained ourselves and things we've done over and over again, and they've built up a pattern that eventually led to a limitation. And what's fascinating is that sociologists have been studying what happens in somebody's life that allows them to overcome a limitation. And in all their study, they've isolated one factor that allows people to overcome limitations that they have in their life. One factor that's underneath all of the stuff in your life that would actually have the ability, the key to unlock many of the limitations that currently hold you down. Do you know what that one factor is? Other people. It's a friend calling you and saying, you can make it. It's somebody encouraging with with, with those words, I believe in you. It's interesting that we are born with the need for connection. Scientists have known this for a long time. Babies are born with this innate and immediate desire to connect with their mother. They connect with their mother for physical nutrients and for food, but they've also studied babies in orphanages who have all the food that they need, and yet they enter into this condition that they call failure to thrive syndrome. It turns out that you need more than just food and water to survive. You need other people. Babies who don't get this touch, they don't develop in the way they should, and not only is their emotional growth and their spiritual growth stunted, but their physical growth is stunted too. It turns out we're integrated beings. At the core of who we are, at the very core of our humanity, we have not only the desire to connect with other people, but the need to connect with other people. We never grow out of that failure to thrive syndrome. When we don't have the connections we need, we cannot be who God has called us to be. We've seen this play out in a number of different areas they've studied. They've studied groups of people who set out to reach some goals, whether it be weight loss goals or educational goals or spiritual growth. And what they found is that people who achieved the goals they set were people who surrounded themselves with communities of people. They did this double-blind study recently where they took a group of elderly people who had experienced either a heart attack or a stroke, and they put them in a group with some other people to talk about the experience to process the experience, to kind of journey together. And then they isolated the other group. They found that the people who were in community with other people had a far greater rate of not having another heart attack or stroke. It turns out that the community of people that surrounded them actually started to change their physical makeup. It's fascinating. They've done studies that would say that people who are involved in a community whose lives are connected with other people have stronger immune systems, 
can recover more quickly from illnesses and are stronger in general because of the community that they are connected with. Is that not remarkable? In Genesis 1 and 2, we read this poem of creation about God's creative work. In chapter 1, it says that God creates and it's good. And he says this six different times. And then on the sixth time, he creates humanity and he says that it is very good. If you fast forward to chapter 2, verse 18, God looks at Adam in the garden and he says it's not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good for humanity to be alone. And we often take that to mean that people should get married. We, we read that at weddings. And it's true, Adam and Eve were husband and wife, but, but this verse is about so much more than marriage. It's about what it means to be human. Genesis 1 and 2 is saying that it's, it's not just good for Adam to be connected to God. He needs other people in his life too. It turns out that just connection to God is not enough for the way that he's created us in the very core of our DNA. What we do when we gather together in community has influence on our biology. It has influence on our spirituality. It changes everything about us because it's God's design for us. I'd argue this morning that there are some things going on in your life, some limitations, that if you were to invite some people in, that God would use it to catapult you into what he has for your life. And that is my hope and that is my prayer today. All of you can think of a time when you achieved something great, when you did something that you did not think that you were capable of doing. And my guess is on the other side of that finish line was somebody there who was encouraging you. There was somebody there who was waiting for you. There was somebody who believed in you who said, you can do it. Connection to other people isn't just something that's beneficial. It is something that is absolutely necessary at a fundamental level of what it means to be human. And so David writes about this in Psalm 133. It's a psalm of ascent. It's a song that the nation of Israel would sing as, as they journeyed to Jerusalem for one of the three major annual pilgrim feasts. With your Bibles turned to Psalm 133, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 133, beginning in verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, if you look at the very first verse of this short psalm, you'll see that this is David's main point, his invitation. He says, how good and pleasant it is. Good would mean that it's good for everybody. It's good for the whole world. Pleasant would mean that it's good in our soul. So it's good out there and it's good in here. When what? When God's people live together in unity. David would have a little bit to say about living together in division. David had a little bit of an estranged relationship with his father-in-law. David was playing the harp and his father-in-law comes and throws a spear at him. 
you think that you've got a bad relationship with your in-laws. What about his sons? David's sons, one of his sons killed his other son. Another son, Solomon, gets the empire and Solomon's kids divide and eventually they divide the entire empire. And so when David writes in Psalm 133, he's writing both out of an invitation to come and taste and see God's goodness and community, but he's also writing to say, listen, when we live in disunity, when we live in division, it actually robs us of the very thing that we were created for. And you know this and I know this. It takes a ton of energy to operate in disunity, doesn't it? And in fact, I know that you've gone to bed thinking about moments and people and times where there was division, right? We all have because it's central to what it means to be human. So here's how we're going to say it today. Division drains our energy, but unity increases our vitality. It reminds us of what it means to be human. It fills us up. Unity is our design. It also runs contrary to our nature, which is why if you read any New Testament letter, you'll find an impetus placed on unity within the church. From the beginning of time, people have been pushing against God's design because of sin, and we've been moving towards division rather than unity. Paul will write to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and let there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Have you ever thought about why he needed to write that? It's not because the church was moving along and things were going great. It's because just like this church and every church that's ever existed, our natural tendency goes against our innate design of needing unity and community, and it moves towards division. And so the New Testament is absolutely ruthless about calling people to more. Within community, we find what it means to be human. We find vitality for our soul. But division has the opposite effect on us. It, it takes us down. It absolutely wipes us out. Now, this psalm is not going to unpack how to live in unity with each other, although I want to offer a few ways at the end. What this psalm wants to do is paint such a compelling picture of unity that you and I would say, we've got to have that. I've got to experience that. We can't settle for division because unity is so good and so life-giving and so beautiful. But it's also hard. It's demanding. It demands that you allow yourself to be known, loved, and valued. And it demands that you know, love, and value others as well. It demands that you become eager to maintain the unity. Isn't it interesting that Paul would write that in Ephesians 4.3? That you need to maintain unity? Why? Because we're always on the verge of disunity. That's what's natural. So we've got to fight for this. We've got to want this. Now listen to the way that Eugene Peterson writes about this. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no abundance in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in and embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. How contrary that runs to our Western individualistic society. 
So listen to this compelling picture that David paints. Psalm 133, verse 2. He's going to use two metaphors that unpack for us what it looks like and what it means to live as the people of God. Verse 2. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Uh, First, I want you to notice that a unified community speaks an amplified message. A unified community speaks an amplified message. I read a story about this young rabbi who took over leadership in a synagogue. And there was some division in the synagogue. There were some people who wanted to sit down during prayer, and there were other people who wanted to stand up during prayer. The people who wanted to sit during prayer were convinced that they had it right. They maintained that that this tradition was the tradition that the synagogue had been founded on since its very inception. The people who wanted to stand were convinced of the same thing for their side. And so the, the young rabbi was, was just so concerned about this. And so what he did is he went to the founding rabbi of the synagogue. This old man who was living in a nursing home, and he sat down and he said, I've got a question for you. At the very beginning of this synagogue's founding, did the people sit down to pray? And he said, no, they didn't. He said, okay, great. So, so that's the tradition. They, they stand up during prayer. He said, no, that's not their tradition. The young rabbi looked at him confused. He says, come on now, like, it's absolute chaos in this congregation. Some people think we should sit. Some people think we should stand. And they're at each other's throats. The old rabbi looked at him and said, yeah, that's their tradition. There's always been division from the beginning. But all humor aside, it breaks my heart that so often us in the church present a distorted picture of Jesus. Sometimes we push people further away because there's times that we just can't get along. Erwin McManus said, I guarantee you that any community that can answer the question, can't we all just get along with a yes, will have the ear of every significant organization in our society. But we've seen it happen. The early church was unified. Jews and Greeks together slaves and free together, people who had nothing else in common coming together around one name. And when they did that, it changed the entire world. Because a unified community speaks an amplified message that demanded to be heard. I saw this video a while back, and I thought it really painted this picture well. If we've got that video, go ahead and and show it. Uh, I I was watching these, these birds fly. These birds were, were flying together, and, and I thought to myself, man, if, if, that were, if that were one bird, do we have that video? Working on it? I'll explain to you what the video is, okay? It's, it's, it's a group of starlings. Have you ever seen the, these starling birds, okay? One bird flies, and they all fly together in unison. It's like they're making these, these patterns that, that are flying all around in these shapes. And it, if, if it were just one bird flying together, like none of us would notice. None of us would even care. But all of these birds flying together, it paints a, a very compelling picture. It, it draws us in a little bit. It, it, it pulls at us. And that's why there, there's a message attached to it. And did you know that, that when we're in community together, The energy and the power of our influence is far greater than the sum of our energy and our influence as individuals. 
When we gather together, one plus one equals more than two. And I wonder, if unity is a message, what are people hearing from us? If unity is a message, what are people hearing from you? What are people hearing from, from the church in general? They're hearing something. And a unified community speaks an amplified message. Here's how that passage, speaking about Aaron, continues. Exodus 30, verse 30. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. This oil carried with it not only an aroma, but, but it prepared them. It made them holy, and it allowed them to enter into the tabernacle to serve God. The oil prepared them to be of service to the king. In the same way, unity sets us apart for the Lord's work. Did you know that the New Testament considers you a priest? 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies who call, of he who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're a priest. When we gather together, we have to remember the community of faith speaks words of hope and goodness into people's lives and prepares them to live as ministers of the gospel. It's part of the function of living in community. It's part of what it means when David writes that unity is like the precious oil on the beard of Aaron. Number two, a healthy community prepares us for kingdom service. I want to talk about a couple of things that go along with this. One is our heart. In Romans 12.10, we are invited to be people who are competitive. Do you know that? It actually invites us to compete to try to outdo each other in love. So what if we really took this disposition, that we were gonna try to bring our best to the table to build up this body because we love and we care for the people who are a part of it? What if our disposition was to outdo people in this church in love? What if we decided beforehand that I'm gonna choose uh, love instead of logic most of the time, even when it's inconvenient? Even when it doesn't fit into my schedule, I'm going to choose to go out on a limb. I'm going to give even when I'm at the bottom of the barrel. I'm going to show love. I'm going to create a space in my heart to love the community of faith that I'm a part of. Do you feel that way about these people? I mean, are these your people if this is your church? I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. Are we willing to go there? So we have a heart that says, I want to serve, but also, did you know that as followers of Christ that you have been gifted? You have gifts to bring to this body? Your gifts are unique and needed, and the way you operate those gifts are unique and needed. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says that to each one has been given a spiritual gift. If you're a follower of Christ, you have something that God has planted inside of you that this community of faith needs. But you know what? The beautiful thing about Christian community is that it does not mean uniformity. 
It doesn't mean that we all look the same, talk the same, dress the same, act the same way, operate the same way. It means that we have the same king and he rules and that's enough. But we bring all different something to the table and, and I would just want to affirm that that is absolutely beautiful and good. How boring it would be if we all looked the same, we all acted the same, we all did the same thing, we all had the same gifts. That would be very boring. But man, what a compelling picture it is when we use our gifts. I think it looks a little bit like this. Uh, last month when we were serving in Guatemala, we had, uh, we had different teams of people serving in different areas. We had a group of people training midwives. We had a group of people working at Morning Glory School. We had a group of people uh, that I was a part of that were training pastors. And we were all serving in, in our giftedness and serving in our, in our passions. Like there was a reason that I wasn't training midwives. You don't want me training midwives. Somebody's gonna get hurt, okay? But what a powerful picture of, of the church coming together, but not the same. You have a gift that God wants to use to build up this body, this body to be more like Jesus. And so I wanna give you three pieces of encouragement in using that gift. First, identify what it is. Uh, this year, you may be familiar that we started Next. It's an experience that includes helping you identify where God has gifted you. We have another Next experience that starts in May, and if you haven't already, you need to sign up for it. Second, develop your gifts. When God gives you a spiritual gift, it's not at a place of maturity yet. God gives you the gift, and then you get to do the hard work of developing that gift to be as useful and beneficial to the most possible people. Listen to the way that Paul writes to his protege, Timothy. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. He's saying, Timothy, it's in there. It's there, it's present, but fan it into flame. Timothy, take those opportunities to speak and to, to lead and to administer. And I would say to you the same thing. Take the opportunities that God brings. You identify your gifts, you develop your gifts third, you use them. Now, if you're saying, Joel, I, I don't know exactly what my gifts are, I don't know where to use them, then I would say to you, start where the need is. Say, listen, my, my heart is to outdo each other in love, so where's the need? And see how God might develop and refine and pull out and fan into flame those gifts. We are a kingdom of passionate priests. We are not intended to be passive observers. This isn't a show. You're a part of the body and your part matters. We will never be who God has called us to be if you are not who God has called you to be because we're in this together. David then switches metaphors and he gives us one last picture of what life and community looks like. First, he said, it's like oil running down the beard of Aaron. We said that a unified community speaks an amplified message. And a healthy community prepares us for kingdom service. And then David says this about unity in verse 3. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now, if you've ever camped outside before without the covering of a tent, you know that when you wake up in the morning, your entire body and your sleeping bag is covered in dew. Well, the same thing happened with Mount Hermon, which is 9,000 feet tall in the Lebanon mountain range. It's the tallest mountain in that area. 
David's painting a picture that everyone would have seen and everyone would have, would have experienced, especially as they were journeying towards Jerusalem. Dew played a really important life in the life of the people who lived there. This dew would fall every single morning. It was ruthlessly consistent. It would start to, to break in the hard ground of the desert. That dew would prepare the desert to receive seeds that would eventually grow into fruition. That dew didn't miss anything. It didn't miss anyone. It permeated everything, and it gave life to all. And David says, yeah, that's, that's what a unified community of faith looks like. It leads to a nourishing community. Number three, a nourishing community leads to a flourishing soul. That's the kind of community that I want to be a part of. How about you? It's identified by a couple of things in the New Testament. The first is that this nourishing community is an encouraging community. Uh, the past uh, Summer Olympics, there was a moment that I'll never forget. There was this 5,000-meter women's race. And during the heat, a runner from New Zealand tripped. And when she tripped, she tripped a U.S. runner also. The U.S. runner immediately bent down, picked her up, and she whispered into her ear, this is the Olympics. You can't give up. I've thought a lot about that. I've thought, what if the church was a place that was more like that? What if we whispered into each other's ears, this is the life that God has called you to live. You can't give up. What if we spoke truth into people's lives and we said, this is your marriage. You can't give up. These are your kids. You can't give up. This is your faith. You can't give up. What if we were more like that? The New Testament describes the church as a place where we gather together. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What if that's what church was like? An encouraging community and a learning community. Do you know that you just don't come to hear from the preacher? You may not know this, but you're a teacher. Your life speaks. Your words speak. Colossians 3.16 commands us, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Do you know who that passage is talking about? Not just me. It's all of us. It's you. That we would be the type of people who in a soul-flourishing way would encourage one another and would point each other towards Jesus. I want to drive this home this morning with three keys to living in community and unity with one another. Number one, take responsibility. Our natural tendency is towards division. Our innate design is unity. So to live as a unified people, it's not on one person. It's not on any individual. It's actually on all of us. Listen to the way that Paul writes in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We need to own that this isn't just on one person. This is on all of us. So here's how I want to encourage you to take responsibility for unity. 
Number one, forgive. Forgive. Newsflash, people are going to wrong you. People are going to disappoint you. People are going to let you down. What if you chose to forgive them before they even did anything? We are a forgiving community. Uh, Number two, stop gossip. Gossip is simply talking negatively about somebody behind their back. It's saying something that you wouldn't say to their face. And here's the thing, this isn't just something that's unique to Bachelor Creek. This is, this is only unique to every single church that was ever in existence when the New Testament was written and every church since then. So here's how we stop it. One, we stop it passively by refusing to participate in it. We just say, I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of this. And second, we stop it actively when we hear somebody start to gossip, when we hear somebody start to, to spread rumors or, or talk maliciously about somebody and we call it for what it is, we call it sin. And we invite them to repent and confess and to be forgiven. Listen to how Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So one, we decided to forgive. Two, we stop gossip. Three, we give love. 1 Peter 4, 8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. You ever stop to wonder why Peter thought he needed to write that? Because there were a multitude of sins needed covering. That's why. And so if we choose forgiveness, if we stop gossiping, if we gave love, what do you think would happen? then we'd be taking responsibility saying unity's on me and I believe that unity is God's design and we flourish in it. Secondly, we assume the best. Think of how many things have gone absolutely off the rails in your life relationally because your initial response is to assume the worst. To assume that that glance was actually filled with malice when in reality they may may just have been having a really hard day. Maybe that email didn't have the tone that you read into it. Maybe we we could go on and on. What if we decided that we're going to assume the best? And here's how you do that. Instead of believing something that somebody said behind your back, why don't you go talk to them face to face? And second, ask great questions and listen. Assume that people are telling you the truth unless they give you reason to doubt that. Take responsibility, assume the best. Finally, focus on common ground. The birth of the New Testament church was revolutionary. You had Jews and Greeks coming together. You had people who would intersect at no other place in society for any good reason, gathering together in the church, saying there is enough to keep us together in a world that wants to tear us apart. We may speak different languages. We may have a different ethic. We may come from different backgrounds. We may value different things. But at the heart of it all, we are gathering around one name, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And that is enough to keep us together in a world that's trying to tear us apart. That's what they would say. Paul would write to the church in Galatia, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This was their anthem. This was their song. So we may not agree on everything, but we agree that Jesus Christ trumps all of our preferences. 
that he sits enthroned above it all and we gather around him. Jesus in the center, keeping it all together. Even in eternity, you know that it's not just going to be you and Jesus, right? And if that's true, then we might want to learn how to get along since we're going to need to get along for a long time. But in all seriousness, David says, for there the Lord bestows his blessing. On what? On unity? On gathering together? When we walk together, when we sacrifice for one another, when we outdo each other in love, when we refuse to gossip, when we choose forgiveness, when we focus on our common ground, when we do all of that, you know and I know that God puts a stamp of approval on that, that God blesses that. It awakens something in our soul that goes, this is how I was designed to live. We all know that division absolutely drains our energy, but unity fuels vitality that we were created to have. God has created us to live according to his design. And when we do that, we experience his blessing. Would you pray with me? God, this morning I pray, just as Jesus prayed in John 17, Lord, make us one. God, would you make us one? Would you make us a united church? Would you help us to realize that we are a body, the body of Christ, and that all of us have a part to play? God, fundamentally, you have created us to need each other. And I pray that as we come together as the church, that we would show this community We would show this county, we would show this this state, we would show our world that we are one. God, that the message of Jesus is above and beyond everything else. God, help us to be one. God, may the whole world see that we are followers of Jesus by the love that we have for one another. And God, I pray for anybody here today who's not united to Jesus, that today would be the day that that they are a part of the family of God, that they're united by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, asking him to be the Lord and Savior of their life. God, we pray for anybody who needs to make that decision. God, our prayer above all is that you would make us one. In Jesus' name, amen.